turn with me again this morning to the book of Habakkuk. Probably find it a little quicker now, third week. This is our third week, look, and now looking at the last chapter of this small prophetic book. We're going to take two weeks to look at chapter three, so this week and next week. Uh, I've included in your bulletin um, a, a few quotes that I'll refer to as well. I, I think I have more more quotes and references than I normally have or, or like to have, so I, I put a few of them down there um, next to the outline in the bulletin. Let's read together uh, chapter 3 uh, of Habakkuk. This is God's holy and fallible word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and quaked, the downpour of water swept by, the deep uttered forth its voice, it lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places, they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth, in anger you trampled the nations, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who arise who will uh, invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like the hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. We'll just recall where we've been in this uh, book of Habakkuk, what's brought us to chapter 3 here, this unique book, which is a a dialogue between the prophet and God. It's uh, rather unique in the fact that prophets normally bring a message from God to the people to correct the people and challenge them. Well, Habakkuk comes to God. There's no message directly to the people here. Habakkuk is coming to God with his 
challenge and questions. And so in the first chapter, Habakkuk said, Lord, look at all of this injustice and violence and trouble around me here in Judah, and I've been crying out to you, and you don't seem to do anything about it. And God replied to Habakkuk, he said, I am doing something. I'm not ignoring sin. I'm doing something that would astonish you. Uh, I'm raising up the Babylonians. I'm going to put an end to this. And then Habakkuk responded again. He strongly objects the idea of God uh, blessing the, the Babylonians, as it were, and using them uh, to oppress Israel. This would mean that even the faithful, even if there are just a few of them, Habakkuk and others, that they would suffer. Uh, how can this be God's plan? Uh, Habakkuk doesn't understand that. And then last week we looked at, at God's response uh, to Habakkuk. He, he assured him that the Babylonians would be judged ultimately. That God wasn't ultimately blessing the, the, the Babylonians. That there is the greatest possible difference between God's people and those who reject him. Uh, that the righteous live by faith. Right, That's the, the key verse that we considered last week. The wicked don't really live at all. Um, and they, they, everything they live for will go up in smoke, God said, because the only and, and ultimate outcome of history is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Another verse that we considered in Habakkuk chapter 2. So that brings us to chapter 3. And just as an aside, more than our series through Mark say, um, that, that these sermons really don't stand alone week to week as this dialogue ties together in, in Habakkuk. So if you missed one of the first two weeks, one of the first two chapters, I'd encourage you to look up that sermon and, and listen to that or, or at least uh, read and, and consider that chapter um, that, that you missed. But chapter 3 brings us to a humble prayer. In fact, actually a song that Habakkuk writes. And we'll consider next week a little bit more the fact that it's a song. But Think about the progression, again, of, of Habakkuk's attitude. Chapter 1, he's upset, he's angry, he's confused, he's demanding answers from God. And here in chapter 3, it's a very different tone. There's no more complaint, there's no more demands. And yet we still have to wonder, how do we put together what we find here? Habakkuk says in the beginning, verse 2, here, I have heard the report about you and I fear. And then verse 16, he describes even more fear. He's trembling and he's in, he's in physical distress. But he also, in, in verse 2, he's, he's praying for the work of the Lord. In verse 18, he's praising God, exulting in God. In verse 19, he says he's like an invigorated deer on the mountain. God is his strength. How, how, do, we, how do we put these things together? He's, he's in fear and yet he's at peace and praising God. Next week, we'll... we'll talk about the distress of verse 16 that it's in part he's still anticipating these hard things that God says are coming he's being honest about that though he's not demanding answers but but how does he hear God in fear verse 1 and yet express remarkable peace and worship and prayer well I think the answer is simply that Habakkuk is found what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord the fear of the Lord we, we could put his progression uh, as well in this way in chapter 1, Habakkuk had intense concern for himself and what he had to see and what he had to endure. And, and he had fear for his own comfort and fear for his own justice. And, and there's nothing wrong with, with these things, but what he's come to in chapter 3 is an intense focus on God. 
It's an example to us, this whole book of what the Bible demonstrates and teaches, that in order to have peace, joy, and hope, the fear of God needs to replace all other fears in your life. The fear of man, the fear of other people, what what they might do or what they think of you, Uh, concern for yourself, your own little kingdom, and your comfort must be replaced ultimately by fear of God. That's not to say all those other concerns are are unfounded or unimportant. But the the question is, what is the greatest thing in your life? What looms largest? What is your greatest concern? And it must be, as it's come to be for Habakkuk, the, the power and glory and justice and plan of God. Before we look at this this chapter in a little bit more detail, uh, what do we mean by the fear of the Lord or the fear of God? We don't actually, of course, find that exact phrase in this chapter, but I think it well illustrates it. Um, It sounds like it would be a negative thing to fear our God in one sense, and and maybe we don't understand that. Well, I, I think partly maybe it's something of a lost concept among Christians. It used to be a more defining thing for Christians it seems it was written about a lot more uh, hundreds of years ago the fear of God Uh, another factor though I think is simply that English doesn't have a great word a single word to communicate the concept of the fear of God that that, that's that, that phrase is loaded with meaning that's not best boiled down to the English word fear Right? That, that's a fairly narrow word in our usage. We, we mean something we're simply terrified of, right? afraid of, recoil at. Like I'm afraid of snakes or uh, monsters in the closet, something like that. Uh, on the other hand, when it's translated just respect, it, that, that seems a little bit too simplistic and, and maybe soft on, on the other direction as well. Uh, here, here's a, a stab at what the concept, the fear of the Lord, is in the scriptures. And this is my my attempt at the definition. A humble reverence and awe of God that includes love and trust. So a humble reverence and awe of God that includes love and trust. So we can understand how it's related to our English word fear and, and that, that kind of awe and respect for God. But it also it's a covenant relationship that includes love and trust. It includes both an acknowledgement that God is is Almighty God, he's absolutely sovereign. He could squash us like a bug justifiably at any time. We are sinners. Uh, He allows, he he determines all of of history. He even allows suffering and evil and pain for his purposes, for his glory. And yet on the other hand, it also involves knowing that he is my God. He's for me. Right? It's, It's in him that I can find truth and protection and love and life. Uh, the fear of God includes all those things. There's a fascinating verse in, in Exodus that makes clear that all of our fears of others, our fears for ourselves, whatever we might fear, uh, is not the same thing that the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. Exodus 20, verse 20. This is on Mount Sinai, of course, Exodus 20. Uh, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Not interesting. It sounds sort of contradictory, right? This this outwardly terrifying scene at, at Mount Sinai. Um, God says, Moses says, God wants you to fear Him, so that you won't fear, so you'll have no fears. It's very similar to what we read in Matthew 10 that Jesus says, "Do not fear," is His command multiple times, and yet He says, 
you need to fear the Lord. I could cite many other scriptures that, that speak of the blessing of the fear of God. It's, it's freeing. It gives peace. Of course, it's the beginning of wisdom. Uh, a number of places the scriptures say that. Jerry Bridges has a book entitled The Joy of the Fear of God. I'm trying to summarize some of that, that blessing. That could be the security of the fear of God or, or the peace of the fear of God. Uh, well, God has in this book, in Habakkuk, uh, reoriented Habakkuk's fears. And one of the quotes I think I have for you in the, the um, outline there is Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Our troubles can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in light of God. We'll, we'll note more next week. The point is not that Habakkuk has come to a point where he is um, uh, totally happy and carefree and, and has no worries. Uh, he's still trembling about what's coming. But he's been humbled to see the world through the eyes of faith, to see the glory and work of God uh, in all that happens. Uh, he's been humbled. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. It says, humility is a rare quality to find even in the present day people of God. We complain about national and local problems and seldom, if ever, reflect quietly on whether it just might be possible that God is trying to say something to us through all these events. Lloyd-Jones is writing in the uh, wake of World War II. Um, Habakkuk has been humbled, I think, to see what, what God challenged him in chapter 1. The very first, the very beginning of God's first response in chapter 1, verse 5. Look, Habakkuk, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. Well, the, the middle, the bulk of, of his song here in chapter 3 shows us how we gain this perspective. How do we gain the fear of the Lord? Uh, and, and so verses 3 through 15 here is this grand vision of the coming of the glory of God. Um, of his, his earth-shaking power and kingdom covering the whole earth and affecting nature and nations. Uh, this is Habakkuk explaining his, his vision of his, his confidence in God Almighty such that now he, he trusts and worships. Not that all his problems are gone. Uh, he's not trembling about some things, but he trusts and worships. So look, consider secondly on your outline there, the fear of God comes from comprehending the glory of God. Uh, here, here's another uh, quote. Um, I told you I had too many of them this morning, but I, I didn't include this one. I just came across it yesterday, not as not in preparing for this sermon. But uh, Paul Tripp writes this: "There is nothing that will put you in your place, nothing that will correct your distorted view of yourself, nothing that will yank you out of your functional arrogance, nothing that will take the winds out of the sails of your self-righteousness, like standing without defense before the awesome glory of God." That's, that's really the only way to the contentment and strength where, where Habakkuk ends up. And, and that's really the vision that he describes here in verses 3 through 15. So I want to walk briefly through this, highlighting how this reveals the glory of God that brought Habakkuk to his humble faith, to, to the fear of the Lord. Just a few things about these verses, 3 to 15. The, the theme, the basic theme is God's coming. Uh, God, God has and will act in mighty Ways in the world, um, ultimately for the salvation of his people. We'll read the word salvation a number of times. Um, and, and this is not a prophecy about one specific event. 
It's not looking to one specific time that God comes. It's, it's the idea that God comes, that God acts powerfully in the world and anticipates maybe his, his ultimate coming in the end when he, he vanquishes all evil uh, completely. But this is, this is the God who powerfully acts and who is glorious and powerful. Um, uh, again, on your outline, I think I have a, a, the, the quote by Robertson, Palmer Robertson, who calls this a collage. And I think that's a helpful image. It's, it's just a, uh, there's not a story being told here or, or a specific event. It's a collage of images of, of God's power in the past at Sinai and the Exodus and just images of his glory um, to, to, to show us God's glory. So let, let's look at this collage together. Verse 3 begins, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament, Mount Paran seems to be a synonym for Sinai. So this is pointing God's people back to uh, the Exodus and Sinai and the powerful display that was of God's judgment and rescue. But it, it pictures everything in the world and the universe touched by the splendor and the worship of God. The verse goes on, his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. And then verse 4 goes on, his radiance is like the sunlight. It, it Habakkuk is trying to describe the intensity of the glory of God. And, and human language really has no words for what, what Habakkuk is trying to describe here. But what do we know that's, that's brighter, more intense than the sun? Right? We can't even look at it. Uh, and, then, and then he focuses that intensity further on, on his hand. He has rays flashing from his hand. Uh, interestingly, literally, it says horns, but it's, it's a figure for, for rays of light. And, and the, only other, the other place this is used in the Old Testament is with Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. Literally, it says he had horns coming from his face. But it was it's bright rays of light, right? People couldn't even look at him. He veiled his face as he was reflecting the glory of God. But, so somehow, God is appearing like the sun, but his hand is even brighter. And then it focuses, and then it says at the end of verse 4, and there is the hiding of his power. That is, the, the full power and plan of God is, is in a sense hidden in his hand. We, we can't know or, or fully understand uh, just how powerful or glorious or perfect or just his, his plan is. And the, the idea of his power and glory being concentrated in his hand probably points to the fact that he's, He's active. He's ready to act for his people. His hand is that in which in the Old Testament, the Psalms, uh, acts in judgment or in protecting his people. Uh, God has this perfect plan hidden in his, is his hand. Um, he's not just bright for the sake of being bright and glorious, but he's an active God. Verses 5 to 7 and, and other verses here too describe the effects of God's coming in terms of nature and, and the nation's. I want to quote just a few psalms, and I, I have these on your on your outline there as well, um, just to show how common this kind of colorful metaphorical description of God's glory and power is in the Old Testament. Psalm 77, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Uh, Psalm 50, our God comes, he does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. So th this is a kind of language, uh, it's not describing something literal happening. It's, it's using images that we know to try to 
understand the power and glory of God. Think about a raging forest fire. There's fire described here. Or a massive, scary thunderstorm. It's trying to put words to a description of the glory and power of God. So verse 5, we have, here we have pestilence and plague. Verse 6, uh, a mere glance of God terrifies the nations and the mountains crumble. Verse 6, that's an incredible image. Uh, verse 7, the enemies of Israel are shaking in terror. Um, and verse 8, there's an interesting switch. Habakkuk has been speaking in the third person about God. Now he switches to the second person, you. He's speaking to God. <coughs> And he's pictured as a great warrior in verses 8 and 9, horses and chariots. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 uh, include the image of an incredible rainstorm and flooding. Um, We've been been hearing about flooding in a number of places uh, recently uh, in our country. A powerful uh, reminder and image of the power of God. Uh, Verse 10, the end of verse 10, probably... Um, recalling the the Exodus, where it speaks of the deep reaching up its hands. That same word is used uh, of the deep uh, reaching up and swallowing Pharaoh and and his army uh, at the Exodus. Uh, Verse 11, the sun and moon stand still, recalls probably the long day of Joshua. Uh, You know that story. Uh, God can control nature and the universe to save his people. And then similar themes continue uh, through verses 14 and 15. I'll just comment finally on verse 13. So look at verse 13 with me. Uh, the first half of 13 is just what, what we call a, a, a parallelism, a, a Hebrew parallelism. There's basically one thing said in, in two different ways, two different lines. So it's stated once and then it's restated slightly differently. So it says, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Um, there There's actually two slightly different ways to translate that. And I, I think the alternative to what I just read is, actually a little better. So it speaks of the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. But it's actually a different word than of the second time. There are two different Hebrew words. And it's the, the word that's commonly translated with or, or by means of. Um, so the, King, the New King James, for example, has it that way. You went forth for the salvation of your people for salvation with your anointed. God's anointed is, is part of bringing salvation. Um, the Geneva Bible and others ha- have it translated that way as well. A uh, second question about this, this verse is, who, who is the anointed here? Um, some have suggested maybe it's, it's Israel, it's God's people. Uh, but, but the anointed is never God's people in, in, in one example in the Old Testament. Um, it's always one person. And uh, certainly you know the Hebrew behind that word, the anointed. It's Messiah. This is the word Messiah. And Messiah in the Old Testament is not always the Messiah. It's not always uh, directly speaking about Jesus, though sometimes it is. But if it's not, it's usually speaking about the king, about David or or another king. And and Habakkuk is hearing from God in this book about a final disastrous end of the line of kings in Judah. The Babylonians would come and there would never again, until 2022, be a king in, in Jerusalem, in Judah. And this is at the end of a long line of, of failed and unfaithful messiahs, uh, anointed ones. But God is going to come in glory for the salvation of his people uh, with his one messiah, a final king, to, to save his people. 
And certainly this anticipates Jesus. And, and look at the rest of verse 13. Uh, it says, You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. What does that mean? Well, it, it's speaking about a, a head or a chief of all evil in the world who's going to be struck down. And then the last part of the, the verse is, is uh, again, a difficult translation. of The basic idea is that he's going to be exposed. He's going to be laid bare. And, and translators differ on whether the reference is to a body, as the, the NAS made that choice, thigh to neck, or whether it's a building. It, it could be uh, foundation to roof. Some translations have that. But um, the, the basic idea is, is simple. In our idiom, it's, it's from top to bottom, Right? Uh, this chief of wickedness will be exposed and struck down. And, and I'd suggest that Habakkuk is given a vision here of the whole history of the plan of God of redemption from the Garden of Eden to Revelation. What, what was God's promise right after the fall to Adam and Eve, after they, they rebelled against him? In Genesis 3.15, that first gospel was the promise that a, a seed of Eve, right, a descendant of Eve, would rise one day to to strike the head of Satan, the chief of evil in the world. That's, that's the promise that's, that seems to be repeated right here, that Jesus would come uh, and defeat the evil one. Now, what the, the Jews, when Jesus came, what the Jews and even the 12 disciples struggled to understand is that Jesus didn't come with this kind of outward glory and power that's described in this, in this vision here. He didn't come trampling on the nations and with a bright sword and scaring everybody away. Right? He was born in poverty and, and uh, lived in poverty and suffered and was killed. And so the, the disciples, as we've seen in our, our uh, journey through Mark, uh, face something of the same dilemma as, as Habakkuk. Lord, how is this the plan? Right? Why don't you just swoop in and, and trample all the bad guys and save your people? And, and they were challenged, as, as you and I are, to know by faith, to trust in the glory and power of God that will ultimately win a total outward victory in every way, in every place, but that is, is not yet, right? that, that waits for God's timing, even though God is powerfully at work, has been powerfully at work, has displayed his glory in various ways through history. Um, yet it it's, can be hard for us to see. But, but come back to this point that God wanted Habakkuk. God wants you to fix your attention not on how things are now and what your life looks like or feels like, but to have a true and overwhelming vision of the glory of God and of his power that, that utterly transforms the way you see the world and see your problems and see evil even. I have on your sheet, I think, a quote by Walter Kaiser. When God becomes the all-consuming reality, our problems begin to take their proper perspective in relation to his greatness and his ability to handle them. We, we can't have that perspective without the fear of God, without being awestruck and overwhelmed by the glory of God. Uh, think about how this happened to Isaiah. What happened to Isaiah when he was given a vision of the glory of God in heaven? He said he was, he was undone. It, it wrecked him. He was a mess. right? And yet this was ultimately what, what emboldened him to, to do the task that God called him to because of who he saw God was. Or, or uh, the story of Gideon. 
is a good example here. I trust you know the story of Gideon. Uh, he, he was terrified at what God called him to do. But what, what then made the difference? Well, it wasn't God sitting down with Gideon and, and convincing Gideon that he, Gideon, was, you know, you're stronger than you really think, Gideon. You're really gifted. You're, you, know, you, you can do this. You know, have courage. No, Gideon gained the fear of God in the sense of, of being in awe of who, who God was, that God was with him, that God was powerfully going to uh, make this happen. Well, have you had that kind of encounter with or conviction of the glory of God? God reveals that to us in, in his creation in some ways. He reveals it to us in our lives, our experience of him. He reveals in, in the news headlines, sort of like he said to, to Habakkuk, look around and see that I am at work, but especially in his word. Especially in his word. In, in passages like this that, that strain to try to describe and to convince us of the glory of God. If, if what Palmer Robertson says is true, the Bible demonstrates that the more godly the person, the greater his fear of the Lord, then are we casually listening to God's word? Can you casually sing psalms about God's power and glory and justice? Uh, can you casually listen to God's word preached uh, just as a sort of routine that we do? Uh, can you casually open open the Bible at home or, or in a Bible study with each other? In order to know real peace and contentment, you need what Habakkuk needed. For your world to center not on yourself, but on God and his glorious, especially as it's revealed in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, King Louis Fourteenth. Oh, and you know who Louis XIV is, right? Louis XIV wanted to be known as one of the greatest, maybe the greatest kings ever, and a part of his attempt at that was uh, carefully arranging his funeral. Uh, and he left strict instructions for his funeral, which took place at Notre Dame, of all places in Paris. And uh, Notre Dame was to be dark, except for one big candle that sat on his, uh, his casket up front. Uh, to symbolize his unique greatness, or he's the light of the world, or whatever, whatever exactly he wanted that to look like. But so this is how it was arranged as Louis XIV's funeral began. Uh, and then the the preacher, a brave figure in church history, uh, Jean Baptiste Maslin, stood up, walked over to his casket, and blew out the candle, and began to preach, opening with the words, "Only God is great." And you can imagine the, the bravery that, that might have taken. But my, my point is your candle, my candle, needs to be blown out in a sense. That we would see and live by the light of the glorious majesty of God. That's, that's what we need most. Our, our greatest problem is our pride. Our, our pride and self-centeredness is the source of all of our sin, our self-righteousness, our mistreatment of others, our laziness, and, and counterintuitively of our fear of other things. Well, this is a final, very brief point that anticipates next week as well. Thirdly, on your outline there, the fear of God turns complaint into worship. The, the summary of where Habakkuk ends up is, again, not that he now fully knows and loves God's plan and, and he's, you know, he's going to have a great and happy life after all. No, it's Habakkuk knows and loves and has a great God and he worships him. 
Again, it's a struggle daily not to worship ourselves as the center of our world. Uh, and that's, that's nothing new. Putting, putting self at center is, is as old as uh, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. But uh, I think there's, there's evidence that it's increasingly difficult in our culture uh, not to worship self and self-concerns and self-identity and self-worth and so on. Um, I was recently reading about a, a survey that's been given to uh, college students. I mean, many other people have taken it too, but this was about the fact that it's often given to those who, when they arrive at college, uh, since the 1950s, so there's a long streak of data, uh, and it's, it's called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, and it's a, a sort of uh, psychological evaluation, not overly scientific, but um, it asks for responses, so you can take this online yourself still, though you'll be kind of poisoned in how you answer it by what I'm going to say, but... Um, it asks for responses to statements like, I am an extraordinary person. Uh, I am more capable than other people. Uh, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And so on. Um, and, and just one example of change over time, and, and again, I'm illustrating here, I think it, in, in some sense, I mean, self is, is nothing new. It's as old as the garden. But there, there's an increasing intensity and difficulty in, in, in placing God at the center in our one example of change over time in this evaluation. In the 1950s, uh, in response to this statement in this survey, I am an important person, 12% of college teens affirmed that statement. I am an important person. By the 1980s, it was 80% affirmed the statement, I am an important person. Um, and and I don't know if the, the survey is still being given today, but, but an analysis of this survey and many studies about it suggested that uh, narcissism has gone up another 30% since the 80s, however that's measured. But uh, again, harder in our culture perhaps not to put self at the center. But as, as I noted last week, looking at God's, con- uh, God's response and his conclusion at the very end of chapter 2, let all the earth be silent before him. Uh, there, there is a time to cry out, as Habakkuk did in chapter 1, to, to bring our concerns, our confusions, our burdens, our questions to God. Um, but there's also a time to humbly worship God as, as the center of all and, and to acknowledge that we are not wise, that we're sinful, that God's plan is powerful and just and good, even if it's painful for a time, but that God is for us and with us and loves us we belong to him, so we worship him with Habakkuk. Uh, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for uh, your word. Uh, from the prophet Habakkuk here this morning, from this song that he's given to us, we pray that you would give us uh, the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of peace and security and joy. Um, Lord, give us a a true sense and vision of your glory and power uh, that we would see the world as you do, uh, as you gave Habakkuk here. We ask your continued blessing uh, on us as we uh, finish looking at this book next week. Uh, We pray for fruit from your word. Uh, as we go from here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.